Good morning. Morning, church. Go ahead and take a seat for me. We're going to read the scriptures while seated today. We are continuing on in our study through the book of James, written by the half-brother of Jesus. We're entering into chapter 5, and James is going to do a shift in his letter to who he's going to address. Thus far, it's been Jewish Christians who were Jewish ethnically, then they turned and gave their lives to Yahweh, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so now he's shifting away from there, and he's going to address the future of, get this, non-Christian rich people, specifically that rely on their wealth, that extort those who are poor, that take advantage of the poor with the money that they have. In other words, essentially, the non-Christian rich person in particular who is storing their treasures here on earth. So read with me, James 5, 1 through 6. Look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. Does this sound familiar? For those of you who've read your Bible around the Gospels a few times, see, James is actually taking Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. And he wants the church to learn something as he's talking about these non-Christian, pagan, rich people. We'll get back into it as we go along. Verses three through the rest of six. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure, corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated for their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached to the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Born again Christian, though the repercussions of this are not the same for us on judgment day, there is something that we can learn. And it is a caution to not store up our treasures here on earth. And church, when, when this text happened to drop on me, and then I looked and previewed what the content was going to be, I thought to myself, Whew, what a fitting word for this house of the Lord today. For City Light Bennington in November 2023. Because if you're anything like me in a season that I'm in, with inflation being what it is, I am hesitant to give. I tend to hoard. I tend to look at the seen things and I allow it to dictate truth to me. I'm in a season of stinginess where I'm holding on to God's money and I'm allowing circumstances to dictate what I do with it. And here's the thing in studying this passage, James wants to articulate to us and the writers of the Bible. It comes at a great, not a small, a great cost. We miss out on the promise of joy when we give and a greater joy 
that we experience. That's Acts 20 verse 35. We'll miss out on a greater praise that we have for when we give generously, then we see that Yahweh our God then backfills with financial favor. We miss out on all those things. That's 2 Corinthians 9 verses 8 through 10. And Proverbs 3 verse 9 through 10. And God tells us, church, you've heard this often, test him in this, in our giving, to see if his principled promises will come true. That when we give generously, that God will provide and he'll provide more than we even imagined. In today's message, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching on treasures that are found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. And we're doing that because James went there with a passage that we just read. And here's my prayer, church, is that God would genuinely inspire us. Not just that we would get head knowledge, we would fall to our hearts, stir our desires to genuinely do this. God, I want to send my money where it doesn't rust and where moths can't get to it. And I want to send it to a place that I'll enjoy it longer than I will now. Let's pray. Jesus, have your way with your church. Disciple your people. Already, the hearts that are hardened, soften them, God. I thank you that it's come, this message is coming from a man who is stingy. I thank you for my background, that I was born with a family that was stingy, that counted every penny, and that never gave, and stole our way to possessions. I'm grateful for growing up house poor, but in the suburbs, and then having you work on my heart to be generous. I'm grateful that you're a generous God and you don't work out of scarcity. Help us see that today. God, out of all the things that you disciple us on in our body and our thought life, this one thing you care about teaching your people today. Soften our hearts, immerse us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's get straight to the text, y'all. Matthew 19, verse 19 through 21, Jesus' is teaching on treasures. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat from and rust destroys them and where thieves break and steal. Rather, store up treasures in heaven where moths and rust, rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever, here it is, church, your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be. Storing up treasures on earth means that we spend our money on temporal things that will collect dust, that will rust, that is temporary, that eventually will be in junkyards or in our family's houses after we die. But instead, Jesus says this, store up our treasures in heaven, which means spending our money on eternal things, things that won't rust, things that won't collect dust, things that cannot be stolen. And church, what that practically looks like is giving our money to eternal things. People that will last forever. God's church, his ministries, everything that has to do for the cause of Christ. Now the question that I once asked is, why does Jesus desire us to invest and those things, rather than the things that we see and enjoy right now, it's because it's a better investment. 
It is a far better investment for us to store up, to lay up our treasures in heaven, where we can enjoy them in the future, rather than here right now. When we give to God's purposes, he sets aside rewards for us to enjoy in the new heaven and in the new earth. Jesus talked about this with a rich man who asked him about heaven. Matthew 19, verse 21. Jesus told him, if you desire to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you, here it is, will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus here is pointing to the connection between our giving on earth and our treasures in heaven. The Bible reveals some of the rewards that happen to do with generous living and other acts of kindness that we do. You'll see it up here on the slide. These are some known rewards that we have. But the treasures in heaven and in the new earth are largely unknown. It's unknown as if you take these beautiful ingredients, you throw it randomly together into uh, the oven. You bake it and then you pull it out. You don't know exactly what we're gonna get, but because of the known rewards that we have, which is being put in charge of many things in the new heaven because of our generosity or because of the leadership over cities in the new heaven and earth because of how we stewarded his money, we can put our bottom dollar, no pun intended, on the promise that we will receive rewards that are worth giving away our money now. You feel me, church? God, build our faith. And may we be thinking at this time, isn't it wrong to be motivated by rewards? Church, if it were wrong, then Jesus would not have offered it up as an option. Our motivations to give can be both because of the good news of Jesus and also because of eternal rewards. Returnal, eternal rewards are not Roy's idea because he happens to be a church planter in Bennington. It's Jesus's ideas. That's how generous God is. We not only get union with him forever in a world without sin, but we also get to enjoy these crazy beautiful rewards in the future for eternity. Randy Alcorn, the author of The Treasure Principle, in which I'll be bringing up some things that I learned from him in today's message. He's the director of Eternal Perspective Ministries, and he calls it living for the line versus living for the dot. So you'll see up here, there'll be an image. The dot here, and if it doesn't come up, imagine it in your mind. The dot represents our short time on earth. It starts, it ends, it's brief. Then there's this line, ah, bless the Lord, it's back there, <laughs> that goes on and never ends. That represents eternity. It's infinitely longer than our time here on this earth. The question is, are we, is our household, you uh, leaders of your household, are we making money decisions that are short-term gains or long-term gains? The question is, are we making decisions that are temporary or with eternal perspective? 
The person living for the dot here lives for the treasures that end up in junkyards, as alluded to earlier. The person who lives for the line lives for treasures that will, again, never end. We can keep earthly treasures and enjoy them for the moment, church. And honestly, that's what most of us are doing. But if we give them away, we will enjoy treasures that will never be, never be taken from us in Jesus' name. Storing up treasures is just a smart investment of our money. It's a smart, wise thing to do per biblical prescription. Just think about it. Every day that passes gets us closer to our treasures because death is a W for us. We get closer with every last breath, even from the last 20 seconds ago, to seeing our treasures. But for the person who stores up our treasures on earth, every day that passes, it gets us further and further away from the treasures we're experiencing now. So that when we actually get closer and closer to death, we see it as a loss and not a W because we're getting further and further away from our treasures. Jim Elliott, a former missionary, he said it this way. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Giving is not about losing our money, church. It's about gaining what we cannot lose. The key to living for the line is found back in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So let's look back with me. It's the very last part. I'm going to reread this passage again. Don't store up treasures on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and thieves break in and steal. Store up treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Here it is. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be. Our hearts always go where we put our money. Our hearts always go where we put our money. Jesus is saying, show me your debit and credit card statements and I will show you the desires of your heart. Hello. What we spend our money on right now where we give God's money to will reveal where our desires really are. Say you buy a stock in Amazon. Our tendency, if we do that, will then be to follow what's happening with that stock a little bit more, more interest. Say that we give to the, a relief fund that we find to go to Gaza for people who are hurting. We're going to follow, most likely, the things that are happening in Israel, in the Middle East. Why is that? This right here, our hearts follow our treasure. Or another way to put it, where our money goes, our hearts follow. And it's reciprocal as well. Randy Alcorn, he actually said it this way. I've heard people say, I want more heart for missions. Don't we all? I always respond, Jesus tells you exactly how to get there. Put your money in missions and in your church and the poor and your heart will follow. That's just biblical wisdom. Yes. 
truth from the Son of God himself. Do we wish to care more about eternal things? Place our money there and see what happens to the desires of our heart. Church, we regularly preach that God, the lover and rescuer of our souls, wants more and more and more and more of our heart's affections. He wants more and more and more of our obedience and surrender. Giving back his money is a part of that. Now, the reason that we don't talk about this at COB and have messages about this is because we're an expository pulpit. Pick a book and go. So we don't always get to these passages. This right here is a discipleship moment for our church. Not just for head knowledge, but for heart knowledge. Because our lack of generosity doesn't always come primarily through knowledge. And, and once, you know that, once you know these things, you still have free will to make a decision, church. Me and Glenn, other leaders in the church, our overseers, we, we don't look at everyone's giving. I don't know what you give. Honestly, I don't care. Didn't care. That's country. I don't care. That's between you and the Lord, just like our obedience. That's between you and the Lord. He wants every asset of our life. He wants our bank account, our checkbooks. He wants our bodies. He wants our language. He wants our relationships. He wants it all and he deserves it. Because he gave everything. Amen, church? That's for you and both my household to discern on what that looks like. So what do we do with money next? Whether we store it up on earth or lay it up in heaven, we'll say, you can look in the mirror and say to yourself three months down the road, where my money is right now from this sermon is reflection of where my heart was and is. Because of this principle, our heart goes where our money is put. To end our time, to just get rid of any ambiguity or questions, I just want to give some clear, practical answers to a couple of things that I think I've discerned and heard from the church. And we're a church that's made up of experienced givers and not experienced givers. The first one is, how much do I give? How much do I give? A legitimate question. Under the Mosaic law, before Jesus rose, ascended, and now sits on the throne and has made his church family those who believe by faith. Okay, so before that time, God's people lived under the Mosaic law, and Israelites would give 10% of their livelihood every year to Levitical priests. This was called a tithe, and it meant that it was going to support. It was designated for the livelihood of the Levitical priests under, again, the Mosaic law. That would be like us giving to our local churches today to support the livelihood of those who are serving within the church and on staff. But here's the thing. The tithe wasn't just 10% for the Israelite one time. Then there was another designation every year as well. So that accumulates to 20% for the Israelite. That one was called the festival tithe. Okay, essentially that would be the equivalent of you giving to the quote local church for budgeting purposes. That had to do with 
uh, meals, events, any events that would be thrown. That was the second, second part of the tithe. Now here's the third part of the tithe. The third part of the tithe had to do with government. You see, Israel, God's people, before the ascension and resurrection of Jesus, they were an ethnic group, primarily. They were a government, theocracy, meaning it was ruled by priests. And so, in order for society to go, this was their taxes. And it was to support the welfare of the nation for orphans, um, for sojourners, and for mourners, um, women who, who had lost their provision by losing their husband. And so they had widow and widowers that were being given through that tithe. That was 10% as well. And that came every three years. So essentially, if you're an Israelite, before the resurrection of Jesus, they were giving around 23% of their, catch this, gross income. Because the way that they were, contextually, was a farming society. And so that they would have to give their crops as their earnings. That was the way that they gave their income. But you'll hear from Christians today talk about a 10% in particular of their income to give as a tithe. Because the reason that they perceive and can justify giving a tenth and how it carried over to now is that that 10% that was given to the Levitical priests back then is kind of like the 10% that we should give now. It's the most relatable from the tithe. All that's to say is, I want to give some context to finally give an answer. (laughs) The new covenant Christian and the letters written to us do not talk about the tithe. They talk about giving that is generous and cheerful. Say it with me, church. Generous and cheerful. It's not a focus on the percentage. The tithe is not affirmed or rescinded. The emphasis is generous and cheerful giving. Look with me. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. But the one who plants generously will give a generous crop. You must each decide, here's what we need to do, church, in our hearts, how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Let me give you a quick discernment. Conviction is not pressure. Actually, it's pressure from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation, different source, the enemy. Ask what you're feeling right now. Ask the Holy Spirit if this is him or not. Is this conviction because I'm not giving right now and you desire more, you have more for me? Or am I feeling bad about something because Satan's telling me each one of us have to discern that for ourselves. Let me finish this verse. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully and God will generously provide all you need. Hallelujah. A promise for now. Amen. Amen. God loves cheerful and generous givers, not those who give, catch this, at bare minimum to check boxes. That's a religious heart. He doesn't want that. And there's no favoritism to God's family. But check out in this verse, God loves the cheerful giver. There's something unique in our makeup when we give. Something unique that just makes our Father in heaven smile. 
Maybe it's the freedom we experience to do it because we're cheerful in doing it. Maybe it's because we're testing him and we're seeing the blessing and benefit. Maybe that's why. Isn't that a beautiful promise though? That God, our creator, has tied his emotions to our giving. And if we do it cheerfully with generosity, it makes him smile. God loves a cheerful giver. Side note, generosity is not the amount that we give. Hello. It's not the amount we give. It's the amount we give in context of how much comes in. In context of how much we earn. For example, imagine a person who is giving, who's making 500000 a year, and they're giving the same amount. Let's just say it's $10,000. Then the same person who's making $50,000 a year gives that same amount. I think we can put two and two together. Who's more generous? You can do the percentages on your own. But for the person who's given $50,000, that's $20,000 of their actual gross income. Now that's not to put anyone, anyone on, on, on notice or to give any pressure it's just to point out what generosity looks like. You can put generosity in context of how much we earn. Randy Alcorn, he gives wisdom on what to consider when we're actually giving. What does generosity look like? Quote here, the tithe, 10%, isn't the ceiling of giving, it's the floor. It's not the finish line of giving, it's just the starting blocks. Tithes can be the training wheels to launch us into a mindset, skills, and habit of grace giving, which is giving so much that it makes us joyful. Continuing on, he says, whether or not the tithe is still the minimal measure of those first fruits of giving, meaning we're giving right as we're earning, I ask myself, does God expect his new covenant children to give less or more? Should we give less or more of the Israelite who never experienced the Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36 promise of the new heart when we believe by faith? Should we give less or more for the Israelite who never experienced the intimate animating presence of God the Holy Spirit when we believed by faith? Should we give less or more living on this side of the resurrection? Experiencing every supernatural and what seems ordinary to us blessing in Christ because of his sacrifice. I think we all know that answer. He wants it all. And for those of you who are intimidated by the 10%, me too. Me too. I remember my mom growing up um, as a non-Christian kid. My mom gets saved. She ends, up, she ends up then praying for me. After three years, I then get saved. And then one of the first things she said was, Junior, it's time for you to give now. And for me to hear that, I thought to myself, lady, who are you? 
because this woman that said that to me was before Christ, a very stingy person. We would go to the Goodwill and uh, she would barter from $2 down to 25 cents. She was that type of woman. So I saw that, I grew up that way. And that's kind of what I carried into my Christianity. So I know, I feel you, if we're talking about this 10%, and now we're talking about being the starting point, I feel you. Here's what I want you to consider. Ask the Holy Spirit if this word is confirming and from him. Pull together the verses and ask him what he desires you to give. Because I, God does not want you to give out of pressure. He wants to get you to give out of a want to. Because from there, he will build cheerful giving within you. The next question and last one, where do I give? Up here, you'll see my bank account number. No, I'm just playing. Um, <laughs> ask the Holy Spirit. Ask God your Savior. Ask the Father. Ask Jesus. He is going to give you that answer. He is going to tell you how much and where to give. His money. His money. Just in principle, things to ask him is ask God, God, where am I being spiritually fed? God, where am I fellowshipping? God, where am I excited because your presence is there and I see you working? He'll tell you. And you won't regret it. And there won't be regret or pressure that you feel with it. The question is, is if we will ask. Every year, Danny and I, we have a meeting. And it's been beautiful. We approach the uh, end of the year with a financial meeting. And weeks before, we talk about, hey, remember our financial meeting in, in terms of where we're going to give for the next year is coming up. And also look back on what we are sensing to give potentially more money to. And at first, I didn't like it, church. Um, I didn't like earning a, a big income and now having to share it with my bride in 2011. Um, I didn't like having to consider her in, uh, in where to give. And God softened my heart to where I stinking enjoy it now. He's made me a cheerful giver because the times before getting into that planning meeting were times where we ask genuinely, where, how much? You tell us. Then we come together and it's like, okay, what did you hear? Oh, that so resonates with me. Let's do that one. Okay, the, seriously? Them? No, 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 no. I don't know about that ministry. Hold up, hold up. Hold up. It, it has become a fun thing to do when you have the mindset that God loves a generous, cheerful giver. And here's the thing. The biggest hesitation in this room, because we're suburban and most of us are Northwest Omaha and Bennington, is that we're scared to give because it affects our lifestyle. The reality is, is that God is our provider. He takes care of the sparrows that we see flying above us, and he dresses the, the fields of the lilies elegantly. He will take care of us. Test him in it. Test him in it, church. 
God will prove himself to not just backfill, but backfill with blessing. Church, Jesus doesn't need our money. He really doesn't. His kingdom's not at risk. This church is not at risk whether you give or not. He is calling us into a life of greater joy, greater freedom. He's calling us into storing our treasures in heaven where rust and moth cannot get to, which we will visit one day and enjoy forevermore. And for those who have not yet given your life to Jesus, as I invite the band up right now, if you have not yet let Jesus run your life, he doesn't want your money. Far from it. He wants your heart. He wants your desires. He wants your thoughts. He wants your emotions and affections. He wants your will. That's what he wants. And he went to the cross to prove it. He has two scars on his wrists to show it to you. It's whether you will allow him to love you or not. It's whether you will allow him to give you the gift, the free gift of salvation that comes from turning away of selfishness, turning towards him and saying, Jesus, I choose to follow you. Then, then my friend, you will experience him as your treasure. And that's the most beautiful thing in a person's life. You're missing out, my friend. For 19 years, I missed out on something that money could not offer your boy. And that was purpose. That was purpose. So we're gonna take time right now and pray. If this prayer resonates with your heart, if you have not yet given your life to Jesus, if this resonates with your heart, then I've got more for you. But let's pray together. For the person who hasn't allowed Jesus to run your life yet, let me know if this resonates. God, forgive me. Forgive me of my selfishness. Forgive me of my shortcomings. I have sinned against you and you alone. I choose now to turn away from running my life. I mean, I know exactly what that looks like, but I'm looking to you, God, to be my treasure. You tell me that in your presence there's joy everlasting forevermore and pleasures at your right hand. I want that. I choose to turn away from running my life and I give it to you. Please forgive me. Place your spirit within me and a new heart. While all of our eyes are closed and heads bowed, if that resonated with anyone in the room, I'm going to pray something that has to do with accompanying you, bringing you to face to face with Jesus, to shake his hand and give him a hug and follow him from this day moving forward. If you're ready, you'll pray this along with me in your thought life.
God, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my selfishness. I choose to turn away from running my life. And I choose to follow you. Whatever that looks like. Give me your spirit and a new heart. In Jesus' name. Now while everyone's eyes are closed, if that was your prayer, what I'll ask you to do, in-house, if you can turn up the lights just a little bit for the uh, house lights auditorium, all I want to do, go ahead and look up and make eye contact with me or raise your hand. All I want to do is just welcome you to the family while everyone's eyes are closed and head bowed. If that's your first brother, welcome to the family of God, dog. As one of your new spiritual brothers, this is the day that the Lord has made for you. New mercies and favor on your life now. God brought you here for this purpose and this purpose only. All the things that have been done to you will be restored. And you're going to have an amazing relationship with your creator that will be more satisfying than any relationship that you've ever had in your life before. Welcome to the family, brother. Anyone else, if you prayed that prayer, go ahead and raise your hand. That was resonated with you. It's time, isn't it? It's been time. I love you. I thank God for you. And can't wait to see what he does through and in your heart, your life, and your family's life. In Jesus' name. House, if you want to go down to the worship lights, this would be the time. We're going to close in prayer. Jesus, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for your power. I thank you for your good news. I thank you for your message. I thank you for these two brothers, new in Christ. Thank you, God, that the trajectory of their life is changing now forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's give it up for God. Save us the folks. Let's go. Let's stinking go.